This is fantastic. Isn't it great? This is fantastic. Here we go. Ray Dalio is one of America's most successful investors of all time, who has pledged to give half of his $18 billion fortune away to charity. It is mind-blowing. He's an icon in the world of finance, in part because of his management principles that includes what he calls radical truthfulness. I want a system in which the best ideas win out. So what's Dalio prepared to say to 60 Minutes about the state of our economy today? Eight years after Japan's catastrophic nuclear disaster, the reactors are still far too radioactive for humans to go inside them. Cue the robots. Working robots with 3D scanners and sensors that can fly, slink, climb stairs, and swim as they look for the nuclear fuel that still poses a massive threat. Monaco is a myth. And we live on it. Monaco is Maseratis and Martinis, mega yachts and a famous casino. Maybe tiny, but Monaco has more multimillionaires per square foot than any other country. This was actually a, an orange grove. Its ruler, Prince Albert, Grace Kelly's son, has seen it all. I remember different parties and luncheons in the summer where mm -hmm. we'd have Frank Sinatra, Kirk Douglas, oh, really? Gregory Peck uh, come by. It's nice to imagine Sinatra around here. Cool. <laughs> I'm Steve Croft. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Scott Pelley. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm Bill Whitaker. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time, and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 World's Most Ethical Companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you, that's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love. Or visit www.pacificlife.com. One of the most successful investors of all time is somebody you probably have never heard of, despite his net worth of $18 billion dollars. Ray Dalio avoids extensive interviews and had not allowed news cameras full access to his firm, Bridgewater Associates, until our visit. He predicted the 2008 financial crisis. Today, he sees a prolonged period of sluggish economic growth and the threat of a confrontation between the U.S. and China. But as we first reported in April, there is a greater danger Dalio wanted to warn us about. So we figured it was a good investment of our time to do a deep dive on the principles of Ray Dalio. When a billionaire invites you to his boat, you gotta go. It's like a terrific day to be out on the water. Especially if he sends a chopper to take you. We flew just north of Nassau in the Bahamas to meet Ray Dalio. 
turn final here and get lined up. It doesn't look big enough. <laughs> Alusia is a 180-foot-long research ship and Ray Dalio's pride and joy. Wow, what a wonderful place to meet you. Thanks for having us out here today, guys. Dalio, who loves scuba diving, bought it nine years ago. He wouldn't tell us for how much, but he had it decked out with scientific gear, including submarines that can dive a half mile. This is fantastic. Isn't it great? This is fantastic. Here we go. Before we go deeper, we should tell you what's on his mind. Dalio, who grew up middle class, is alarmed about the growing divide between the haves and have-nots. He points out that over the span of a decade, America's lowest paid workers had just a 14% chance of rising to the middle class. What has happened to the American dream? I think the American dream is lost. I think, uh, for the most part, we don't even talk about what is the American dream. And it's very different from when I was growing up. But what's not working? It's not redistributing opportunity. We can call it a wealth gap. You can call it an income gap. And so I think that if I was the president of the United States, or it has to come from the top, what I would do is recognize that this is a national emergency. It's, it's oh, that it's, bad? If you look at history, if you have um, a group of people who have very different economic conditions and you have an economic downturn, you have conflict. In the 30s, for example, you had four major countries that were democracies that chose not to be democracies because they wanted leadership to bring order to the conflict. I'm not saying we're going to go there. I'm saying that right now it's a huge issue. It's unfair, and at the same time it's unproductive, and at the same time it uh, threatens to split us. Dalio spends a lot of time thinking about where the markets and the world are going here at the financial powerhouse he built. Bridgewater Associates is tucked in the woods of Connecticut at the confluence of two rivers popular for fishing. It's 50 miles from the chaos of Wall Street. So you play it calmly. Calm is critical. You know, the emotions will kill you. At 69, Ray Dalio bears little resemblance to any Wall Street shark. He's more like a quirky professor. Dalio has joined fellow billionaire Bill Gates and others in their belief that the concentration of wealth in fewer and fewer hands is a threat to democracy. So should taxes on people like you be raised? Of course. You say of course. Of course. One way or another, the important thing is to take those tax dollars and make them productive. Very, very recently, the idea has been that cutting taxes on people like you will promote productivity. Yeah, uh, I, that, I, that doesn't make any sense to me, at all, uh, any sense at all. So it's got to be through taxation. Yes. Am I saying something that's controversial? It's just strange to hear it come from the mouth of a billionaire. I'm a, I live the American dream, you know? His father was a jazz musician, his mom a homemaker. Dalio bought his first stock when he was 12, with money he earned as a golf caddy. Today, Dalio's firm manages $160 billion. 
It has all the excitement of an insurance agency. Dalio's analysts don't chase the gyrations of the market. Instead, they quietly study centuries of history, looking for patterns in stocks, politics, anything to help buy winning investments. Dalio is especially bullish on China, which he predicts will be the greatest economy of the 21st century and America's greatest rival. Last year, his global approach helped him earn a remarkable 15% for his clients, while the Dow dropped 6%. We see the successful Ray, but you hit some bumps along the road on the way here. Yeah, of you know, course. Like in the 80s, you kind of bottomed out. Oh, yeah. But the Federal Reserve is less able to revive... Back then, he was a Wall Street whiz kid, absolutely certain a depression was on the horizon. The economy is now teetering on the brink of failure. He was wrong, very wrong. He missed the boom of the 1980s. I read that you called yourself an arrogant jerk. Oh, I was an arrogant jerk. I had to borrow $10,000 from my dad to take care of my family. Yeah, I was you're, broke. You're, you're a musician dad? Had to cough up $10,000 to keep you afloat? Yeah, and it was one of the best things, really, that ever happened to me because it changed my whole approach to decision-making. It gave me the humility that I needed to balance with my audacity. Because He took note of his failures and other lessons over the next 25 years and wrote Principles, published by Simon & Schuster, a division of CBS. Two million copies of the book have been sold worldwide. It's Dalio's recipe for creating what he calls an idea meritocracy. So what I mean is that I want a system in which the best ideas win out. And I would describe it as tough love. And I want to get there through radical truthfulness. In other words, people say what they honestly mean. And radical transparency allows people to see things for themselves. So does this get rid of the office backstabbing, oh, yeah. there, politicking? There's a rule here. Um, that you can't talk behind anybody's back. You, you do that three times, you're out of here. Everybody at Bridgewater is monitoring everybody else almost all the time. We saw it at this meeting where workers and managers gave each other grades in real time. What sort of grades do you get? You can see, like, I get blasted uh, a lot. <laughs> There's a bit of a Big Brother vibe here. That camera isn't ours, it's theirs. Nearly every meeting is recorded and scrutinized. Can you understand somebody looking at it from the outside? That sounds a little strange. No, I understand it. I understand. Maybe even a little creepy. I totally understand how that could sound that way. You also have to understand that when you're doing this a while and you look at other organizations and people are not open with each other, and they're hearing a lot of spin, that from this point of view, that seems creepy. Do you have a high turnover? I would say in the first 18 months, it's about 30, maybe a little over 30%. The 30% sounds like a lot. Some people describe it as an intellectual Navy SEALs. You know, um, you go, certain percentage are not going to make it, and that's the way it is. Think what you want, it's hard to argue with success. Bridgewater has made money for its clients 25 of the last 28 years. This is otherworldly. Shipwreck. A shipwreck. Yeah. Look at that. 
Whether it's investing or exploration, Dalio goes his own way. Well, while your fellow billionaires, Bezos, Branson, Elon Musk, they're all going into outer space. They're headed towards Mars and the moon. You choose to go down. Why is that? Well, I, as I say, I find um, ocean exploration a lot more exciting, a lot more important than space exploration, right? And then you think about it affects our lives so much more. Dalio routinely hosts scientists who have found new creatures in the deep, like these that generate their own light. There was also this off the coast of Japan, a live 26-foot-long giant squid. Oh, that's great. We didn't have that kind of luck, but we had plenty of company. So they'll have tiger sharks, bull sharks. What kind is this? Uh, that's a Caribbean reef shark. Caribbean reef shark. Yeah. Sharks are beautiful, powerful machines. Wow, look at this. I don't understand the resource allocation of space to the ocean. Really, in terms of return on investment, you know, I think about return on investment. The return on investment down here is fabulous. As we went deeper, the ocean became barren. The coral once here was gone, a symptom of nature out of balance. And, Dalio says, a metaphor for what's happened to economic opportunity. If I come down here and I see the coral reefs are dying and the population is dying, I know that we're out of balance. It doesn't take a genius to know that you're out of balance and you should do something. So lately... How did you get the motivation? He's been putting his money into public education to help restore economic balance to his home state. But it all comes together. His wife, Barbara, handles that portfolio. In April, the Dalio Foundation pledged a record $100 million to Connecticut schools. So you and Ray are partners in this endeavor? We're not partners. Ray has his passion, which is the ocean, and my passion is public education. And it would so he, be... does, he does his passion and you do yours. Exactly. The program takes a page out of Bridgewater's investing strategies by relying on data to closely follow student performance and behavior so teachers can help at-risk students. It's paid dividends in just three years. The number of kids on track to graduate in this high school is up by 8%. It is so important for us to engage... Ray Dalio has agreed to donate half his $18 billion fortune to charity to help mend the system that made him rich. With the right and left at each other's throats, Dalio warns time is running short. Capitalism needs to be reformed. It doesn't need to be abandoned. So like anything, like a car, like anything, a plane, a school system, anything, it needs to be reformed in order to work better. American capitalism is not sustainable. That's what I hear you yes, say. I don't think it's sustainable. We're at a juncture. We can do it together or we will do it in conflict. That there will be a conflict between the rich and the poor. Which path do you think we will take? I play probabilities, and I would say it's probably 60-40, 65-35, that it will probably be done 
badly and that it would be a bad path. But I'm saying it doesn't have to be that way. By realizing that it is a juncture, maybe we can nudge just a little bit the probabilities so that we can have a better outcome. More than eight years have passed since a monster earthquake and tsunami struck northeast Japan and triggered what became, after Chernobyl, the worst nuclear disaster in history at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. As we first reported last fall, when three of the plant's six reactors melted down, hot fuel turned to molten lava and burned through steel walls and concrete floors. To this day, no one knows exactly where inside the reactor buildings the fuel is. And it is so deadly, no human can go inside to look for it. So the Japanese company that owns the cripple plant has turned to robots. There are four-legged robots, robots that climb stairs, and even robots that can swim into reactors flooded with water. They're equipped with 3D scanners, sensors, and cameras that map the terrain, measure radiation levels, and look for the missing fuel. This is part of a massive cleanup that's expected to cost nearly $200 billion and take decades. Has anything like this cleanup, in terms of the scope, ever happened before? No, this is a unique situation here that's never happened in human history. Uh, it's a challenge that uh, we've never had before. Lake Barrett is a nuclear engineer and former Department of Energy official who oversaw the cleanup of the worst nuclear accident in U.S. history, Three Mile Island. He was hired as a senior advisor by TEPCO, the Tokyo Electric Power Company that owns the plant and is in charge of the effort to find the missing fuel. He's also advising on the development of new robots, like this six-legged spider robot that engineers are designing to hang from scaffolding and climb onto equipment. He describes them as... Very advanced working robots that will actually be the ones with long muscular arms and uh, laser cutters and such that will go in and actually take the molten fuel and put it in an engineered canister and retrieve it. Should we think of this as a project like sending someone to the moon? It's even a bigger project in my view, but there's a will here to clean this up uh, as there was a will to put a man on the moon, uh, and these engineering tasks can be done successful. Why not just bury this place? Why not do what they did at Chernobyl? Just cover it up, bury it and just leave it here all in you know enclosed number one this is right next to the sea we're 100 yards from the ocean we have typhoons here in japan this is also a high earthquake zone uh, and there's going to be future earthquakes so these are unknowns that the japanese and no one wants to deal with the earthquake that caused the meltdown measured 9.0 the most powerful ever recorded in japan and triggered a series of tsunami waves that swept away cars, houses, and entire towns, killing more than 15,000 people. At Fukushima Daiichi, the enormous waves washed over the plant, 
flooding the reactors and knocking out power to the cooling pumps that had kept the reactor cores from overheating. Lake Barrett took us to a hill overlooking the reactors where the radiation levels are still relatively high. So this is actually right where it all happened, the heart of the disaster, right here. Correct. There's reactor number one, reactor number two, reactor number three, and when the earthquake happened 100 miles away, these buildings all shook and these towers all shook. But the design was such that they were, they were safe. But 45 minutes later, waves were racing in, tsunami waves, from the earthquake. And there were seven waves that came in at 45 feet high and put the station in what we call station blackout. They had no power. And the cores got hotter inside and hotter and hotter again until the uranium started to melt. How many tons of radioactive waste was developed here? Probably 500 to 1,000 tons in each building. So how long will it be lethal? I will be lethal for thousands of years. What we're talking about, really, is three meltdowns. Yes. It was truly hell on earth. The meltdowns triggered huge explosions that sent plumes of radioactive debris into the atmosphere, forcing the evacuation of everyone within a 12-mile radius, about 160,000 people in all. Weeks later, TEPCO officials engaged in so-called kowtow diplomacy, allowing townspeople to berate them as they prostrated themselves in apology. Thousands of workers were sent to the countryside to decontaminate everything touched by radiation, including digging up dirt and putting it in bags, lots of bags. But while much of the evacuation zone has been decontaminated, there are still entire neighborhoods that are like ghost towns, silent and lifeless, with radiation levels that remain too high. At the plant, they're capturing contaminated groundwater, about 150 tons a day, and storing it in tanks as far as the eye can see. Water is always a major challenge here, and it's going to remain a major challenge until the entire cores are removed. The closer workers get to the reactors, the more protective gear they have to wear, as we discovered. We were zipped into Tyvek coveralls and made to wear two pairs of socks and three pairs of gloves. Okay, we're going to tape. Not an inch of skin was exposed. The layers of protection include a mask. It's a little loose. That often fogged up. How are you feeling? Good. And a dosimeter to register the amount of radiation we'd be exposed to. We were ready for battle. We went with a team of TEPCO workers to Unit 3, one of the reactors that melted down on that March day eight years ago that the Japanese call simply... 311. Lake. There you are, unit three. Oh, watch it. Step. These are shield plates because there's cesium in the ground. In the years since the accident, much of the damage to the building has been repaired. But it's still dangerous to spend a lot of time here. We could stay only 15 minutes. There's this number I've been seeing, 566. Right. That's telling you the radiation level that we're in. It's fairly high here. That's why we're going to be here a short time. How close are you and I right this minute to the core? 
The melted cores are about 70 feet that way behind 70 feet from here is the melted core? Correct. That's right over in here. We don't know quite where other than it fell down into the floor. So if you sent a worker in right now to find it, how long would they survive? No one is going to send a worker in there because they'd be overexposed in just a matter of seconds. Enter the robots. This is the Robot Research Center. This is for remote control technology development. In 2016, the Japanese government opened this $100 million research center near the plant, where a new generation of robots is being developed by teams of engineers and scientists from the nation's top universities and tech companies. Dr. Kuniaki Kawabata is the center's principal researcher. This is the newest robot, the J11. So number 11. Yes. And what, it's, it's an obstacle course. Yes. The operators use the camera image in the front of the robot, but it's so many hours required to train because it looks very easy, but it's quite difficult. They also train here in this virtual reality room with 3D data taken inside the reactors by the robots is projected onto this screen. Operators using special glasses can go where no humans can. So we're actually walking through mm-hmm. a part of a mm-hmm. reactor. Mm-hmm. You feel some immersive experience. As if you're in there. Yes. I actually want to duck. I mean, that's how real it feels to me. Mm-hmm. Like, here we're going under this thing, I have to duck. Ah, uh, yes. But even with all the high-tech training and know-how, the robots have run into problems. For the early models, it was the intense levels of radiation that fried their electronics and cameras. Their lifetime was hours. We'd hoped it would be days, but it was for hours. Tell us what happened to the robot named Scorpion. This is a highly sophisticated, and I gather everybody thought this was the answer. That was going to be the first robot we were going to put inside the containment vessel, which is where we need the information the most, because that's where the core is. This is Scorpion, whose mission cost an estimated $100 million. It was designed to flatten out and slither through narrow pipes and passageways on its way to the core. And like a scorpion, it raises its tail. The tail would come up with a camera on top with lights, because you have to have its own lights. It's all dark inside. There are no regular lights. So that was the plan, and we had great expectations and hope for that. We all did took a year to prepare, and it was hard work. But when Scorpion went inside, it hit some debris and got stuck after traveling less than 10 feet. I can't imagine the frustration lim- levels. Well, but you'd learn more from, from failures sometimes than you do from success. They had more success with this robot named Little Sunfish, which was designed to swim inside one of the reactors flooded with water. In preparing for Little Sunfish's mission, engineers spent months doing test runs inside this enormous simulation tank, fine-tuning the propellers, cameras, sensors, and 65 yards of electric cable, all built to withstand intense levels of radiation. They used nuclear reactor number five to help plan the mission. It didn't melt down when the tsunami hit, and is nearly identical to the one Little Sunfish would scout. Finally, in 2017, the swimming robot made its foray into the heart of the reactor 
to look for the missing fuel. Barrett took us into Unit 5 to show us how it maneuvered through the labyrinth of pipes and debris inside the reactor. The little sunfish came down on the edge and it swam underwater down through this little entryway here underneath the reactor vessel. Is this the route that the little sunfish took? Yes, this is. The little sunfish swam through this portal Mm -hmm. down into this area. It went around the side. It went down through this grating, which was gone. We are standing directly underneath the reactor vessel. Molten fuel came through here, and it jetted out under very high pressure, and then it came out slowly like lava in a volcano. And it fell down and burned its way through this grating down to the floor. This is what little sunfish saw as technicians guided it through the pipes and hatchways of the flooded interior. It beamed back images revealing clumps of debris, fuel rods, half-destroyed equipment, and murky glimpses of what looks like solidified lava, the first signs, TEPCO officials say, of the missing fuel. These robotic steps so far have been significant steps, but it is only a small step on a very, very long journey. This is going to take, you said decades, with a S. How yes. many decades? We don't know for sure. The goal here is 40, 30, 40 years. You know, I personally think it may be to 50, 60, but... Oh, maybe longer. Well, it may be longer, but reality is this is a challenge that's never been dealt with before. But every step is a positive step. You learn from that and you go forward to another step. The latest step includes a new generation of robots shaped like boats and submarines that are equipped with graspers designed to collect samples of the melted fuel. They make their debut this summer. There's a reason Monaco has often been described as a sunny place for shady people. For decades, crooks, courtesans, and con artists were drawn to this slip of land by the sea because of its wealthy residents, its famous casino, and its willingness to ignore pesky banking regulations. It's the smallest country in the world outside the Vatican, less than one square mile, and in America it's been associated with glamour ever since movie star Grace Kelly became Princess of Monaco in the 1950s. Today it's home to more multimillionaires per square foot than any other country, and while Grace Kelly's son, Prince Albert, has been trying to push his nation into the 21st century, it unapologetically remains a place where you can parade your jewels, park your money, and not pay any income tax. There are certainly prettier parts of Europe, but as we first reported this spring, it's Monaco, where the super-rich are clamoring to get in. For many, Monaco is synonymous with the high life. Maseratis and martinis, mega yachts and motorboats. That's our Fisher Island. That would be where all the wealthiest people rent. That's Stephen Saltzman, a longtime resident whose job, among other things, is to help wealthy foreigners move here. His father produced the early James Bond films, and Stephen pitches the principality with the hyperbole of a Hollywood producer. Monaco is utopia. Utopia? It's a country with no sovereign debt, where a hundred different nationalities live together, protected in peace by a planet-loving prince. Is Utopia this wealthy, though? 
Well, I'm talking about utopia because it's a perfect society. Uh, a perfect society? The first thing you really notice about Monaco is how small it is, less than a square mile carved out of the coastline of France. A cramped alcove of aging apartments hugging a harbor barely big enough for the boats that dock here. There's certainly more yachts in Utopia than I imagined there would be. Well, this is yacht heaven. It's the mecca of the yacht. You know, they always say the two times in yachting that are fun, the day you buy it and the day you sell it. <laughs> With enough money, you can buy just about anything in Monaco. There are more luxury shops than supermarkets. What are you bidding, sir? Fundraisers are the social events of the summer, and whatever you have, you can flaunt it without fear. Monaco isn't a police state, but there are cops everywhere. They're very polite. They salute when they see you, but make no mistake, they're watching everything. Not just with cops on corners, but cameras, lots of them, clocking pedestrians and each car that comes into the country. They see everything. They see everything. And I'm happy about that because it, I know that I live in safety. I'm secure and that the government of this country takes that very seriously. Monaco also takes the good life very seriously. At times, it feels as much like a country club as a country. Membership will cost you. To become a resident, you have to prove you make a lot of money or have more than half a million dollars in the bank. And you have to promise to live here six months of the year. There's not much of a beach to speak of, and traffic can be a nightmare. So what's the appeal? A big one is taxes. In Monaco, you pay no income tax, and rarely pay capital gains or inheritance tax. That is, unless you're American, the IRS taxes you no matter where you live. Monaco may be known as a tax haven, but around here, that's kind of a touchy subject. No one here is cheating on their taxes. We pay our sales tax, we pay our property tax, we pay our tax in on our employees, and we pay our tax on our corporate profits. They don't need more taxes. But part of the appeal has got to be, well, I can come here and I, I don't have to pay income tax. The fact that Monaco doesn't need income tax may be part of the attraction, but it may be somebody who'd also like to have their boat, live in security, and, and not worry about uh, their daughter going down to the supermarket and getting knifed. It might sound like a dim view of the rest of the world, but serious crime is almost non-existent in Monaco. That's part of the attraction for tourists as well. Every day they flood the principality, hoping to get a glimpse of how the 1% live. Monaco is a myth, and we live on it. People want to believe in the myth. They want to come and see it. That's what people expect. Jan Anthony Nogis grew up with that myth. His family has been here for more than 200 years, which makes him something of a rarity. He's a citizen. It's good to be a citizen here. Citizens are known as monogasques, and it's almost impossible for foreigners to become one no matter how long they've been here. Out of the 38,000 people in Monaco, less than a quarter are citizens. Most monogasques are not millionaires, and they couldn't afford to live in their own country without special privileges and a variety of subsidies. You see people driving around in Lamborghinis and Bentleys and parking them out on the street. Is there tension? No. No. Because foreigners are our wealth. The foreigners are a source of wealth for the citizens. Yeah. There, there's not huge industries here. There's not farming here. That's how the country makes money. Exactly. Hey, 
It's lights out, and away we go. The country also makes money hosting prestigious international events. Biggest of all, the historic Grand Prix. It takes place each spring and attracts tens of thousands of visitors and top Formula One teams. Some of the drivers don't have to commute very far. World champion Lewis Hamilton lives here, along with dozens of star athletes in a variety of top sports. For four days, 20 turbocharged, multi-million-dollar machines hurtle through Monaco's winding, narrow streets. There's nowhere in the principality you can escape the deafening roar. Jan Anthony Nogus's grandfather founded the now legendary race 90 years ago. So, for a local, what is race weekend like? Well, it's heaven and hell. <laughs> heaven because. Well, it's heaven for guys like me who love it, and I'm having a real good time. But it can be hell when you just live right in that building and you don't have a pass to go watch the race, or you don't like hearing music exactly. from yachts, or loud people coming to party. There are a lot of loud people wandering around race weekend. By day, they dance and party by the racetrack. At night, the action moves to the yachts docked in the harbor, where the champagne flows, and you can dance or do this all night. It's hard to imagine what Grace Kelly would make of it. She was Hollywood royalty in 1956 when she married Prince Rainier. Whose family had ruled over the principality for 700 years. It was called the wedding of the century, and with it, in the minds of many Americans, a fairy tale was born. Yes, indeed, it certainly was a great day in the long history of the principality. Hollywood stars came calling, and high rollers from America flocked to gambling's high temple, the ornate casino in the tiny neighborhood of Monte Carlo, so often immortalized in movies. Name's Bond. James Bond. Hello, hello, hello. That was the Monaco that Grace Kelly's son, Prince Albert, grew up in. Bonjour, ça va bien. The palace gardens were his playground. I remember different parties and luncheons in the summer where、mm-hmm. we'd have Frank Sinatra, Kirk Douglas,、oh, really? Gregory Peck、yeah. come by. It's nice、yeah. to imagine Sinatra around here. <laughs> the prince is famously shy and surprisingly accessible. His title is a big one for such a small country. He's referred to as His Serene Highness. You can really see everything from here. Yeah. He's no figurehead. He runs this place. He's prince, mayor, CEO, and in many ways, luxury landlord. Take a look at his desk. There's not a problem from international diplomacy to traffic troubles downtown that he doesn't oversee. The buck starts and stops with him. Most people we talk to have. Referred to you one time or another as the boss. My father was called the boss as well. I view it as an endearing term. Bosses usually do. <laughs>、uh, it's not an not an easy responsibility, no matter what the size of the country is. When Prince Albert ascended the throne 14 years ago, Monaco had lost some of its luster. The casino's fortunes had faded, and the principality had earned a dubious reputation. For turning a blind eye to crooks and tax cheats, there was that famous quote that Monaco is a、mm-hmm. sunny place for shady people.、Mm-hmm. Was that fair? At a certain period in, in time, it was a pretty accurate description. But there, were, there were a lot of shady people、time. here in the past. Monaco is certainly not a place like that anymore. 
Prince Albert has publicly pushed to get the country in line with nearly all international banking regulations. And he's been dubbed the Green Prince for his focus on climate change and for mandating that all new construction needs to be environmentally sustainable. The problem is there isn't much space left to build on. This $2 billion project is underway to add 15 acres for luxury apartments by expanding out into the sea. Monaco is among the most expensive real estate in the world, and new developments like the Odeon Tower are in high demand. Apartments are set aside here for the Monegasque at a deep discount. It's perhaps the fanciest public housing in the world, though there is a separate entrance for the super-rich. So which entrance do we go into? That one. This is the main one? Yeah. Okay, after you. Peter Van Neltwick is a real estate broker. All of Monaco at your feet. When we were there, he was offering this five-story penthouse in the Odeon. I'll take you down to the uh, master bedroom floor. The price? $300 million. And this is onyx? Yep, retro-lit onyx. Very difficult to cut because it's uh, curved. It's a 38,000-square-foot marble-clad mansion in the sky. With seven bedrooms, a movie theater, a gym, gold fixtures, and what's an outdoor pool without a water slide? You have about four or five kitchens. Four or five kitchens. Well, I mean, you don't want to walk to another floor to get no breakfast. That would would you do that? Terrible inconvenience. Exactly. Wow. There you are. The view is spectacular, and the apartment perfect if money and taste are no object. You see it as somebody who has a mega yacht, a three hundred million dollar yacht and wants to settle down somewhere. Yeah. Maybe the gentleman will change his wife, and the wife will not like the sea, and she says, I want to live in a nice building. The gentleman will change his wife. (laughs) So, you know, you have all kinds of... There's a lot of that goes on. I know. (laughs) Monaco is certainly not for everyone. But then again, that's the whole idea. Monaco is like a dream, you know? Like a dream. Like a dream. Everything is perfect. Flavio Briatore is an Italian businessman who moved here 10 years ago. In Monaco, Albert's the prince, but Flavio is king of the night. Just don't ask him to pick you up in his new Lamborghini before 11 p.m. We have a people spend 300,000 euros in one night. Eh? 300,000 euros yeah, yeah, in your restaurant? Yeah, yeah. I saw you the video. On food and... and uh, party. Champagne and... Champagne. And all the Briatore owns this nightclub, Twiga, part of his global empire of clubs, clothing brands, and restaurants, humbly called Billionaire Life. A place where the Roaring Twenties never seem to have ended, and the rich and those who want to be rich can meet and mingle, and maybe find companionship for the night. Is that what Monaco is, a party? Yeah. You have two faces of Monaco. You have the day, quiet. In the night, people go around, the people go to the disco, people go to the restaurant. All the restaurant is working very late. The party goes on. The party goes on. <laughs> In this age of instability, uncertainty, and inequality, it may seem strange this odd oasis of opulence still exists. But Monaco wants you to forget about all that. Have some champagne. Enjoy the party. Why worry? From here, the rest of the world is far, far away. I'm Steve Croft, and we'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes.